Hey guys, hello and welcome back. Gosh, sellers, it, we're in September already. I know, and my son turns 15 this month. Oh, that's scary. Well, you want to know what's really funny is, you know, we talked last time we were recording about school starting and all of that. Well, my grandson, I hate even saying those words, grandson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really a very young grandma. <laughs> anyway, he just started high school. What? Uh-huh. In my head, he's little. I know. Me too. I mean, even though every time I see him, he gets taller. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but I just like, when she said it out loud, I knew it. Like in the back of my head, I knew it. But, but then it's real when it you say just, it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he had to go to orientation. <laughs> She says, I don't even get to go with them. They go by themselves. It's mm -hmm. like they do it all by themselves. And I'm like, wait a minute, high school? Hang <laughs> yeah. so, let's rethink this. I know. I'm like, oh, gosh, now I really am starting to feel it. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, going to need some patience for this driving experience. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, he was with his dad and stepmom last weekend and they were at a family reunion, kind of like over in a little small area. Um, so they were going to let him just drive around a little bit. And they were like, oh, uh, he was on the wrong side of the road. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And apparently it was like a, everybody was like, <laughs> and we're not yeah. in Europe. <laughs> he said, I wish they would have just told me instead of yelling at me. And I talked to his stepmom at the game last night. She was like, we did, but you know, he knows everything. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> yep, I know. Oh, happens. So, Teenagers. Now we're all like, okay, so are we drawing straws for who's going to teach him really? Mm -mm. Who has the most patience? <laughs> oh, I'm going to vote for my mom. <laughs> so you like the new logo we got a new look this week no it was fun you know watching everybody vote and it, i mean it was really close i mean it was really, really close, literally yeah. close right we had somebody do a tiebreaker it was you right no oh my grandmother did it my grandmother did the tiebreaker yeah i didn't want to be the tiebreaker <laughs> yeah because yeah. it was like neck and neck tied up and mm -hmm. so i sent the two they were tied the blue and the white to my grandmother and okay which one do you like and i'm not gonna lie i was secretly praying that she was gonna say the blue but she went <laughs> with the white um which i like the white it pops really well yeah it does pop there there's just i love both of them for different reasons i think yeah I, told you, agreed. You know, the, I think the white overall is better for you know what it is mm -hmm. but i do kind of like you know the blue and plus it's you know been we've had blue for so long i know <laughs> so it's hard to get used to a new look but i really like it i know and i think it kind of fits with what we're doing i like it having does. the alabama in the background the map of alabama in the background mm -hmm. and I don't, it just it fits better it, I agree. I agree. A more and, accurate depiction of what we're doing. Yeah. And credit to Sellers is the one that designed it. So great job. I like doing that stuff. I know you do. I do too. I just don't have much of a creative mind right now because everything's just too crazy around here. Yeah. <laughs> day Saturday, first day of college football. By the time this comes out, we'll know who won or whatever. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and say War Eagle. I know. 
That's I'm just like, gonna have to start rooting for them. I really don't. I don't know much about college. I'm in the minority. Like I'm the only Auburn fan in our household. Um, I'm like one of the only Auburn fans in my family. Really, um, there's like me and my dad. <laughs> Basically, yeah. my grandmother. I start paying attention to college football too because I I know some people like that better than pro football. Yeah, a, a lot of people do. Like we don't have a we don't have a pro team in Alabama. You have to True. like yeah. go to a neighboring state really or like yeah. me, go to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Funny. Whatever. Yeah. And then our high school team won last night. We're on week oh, two yay. of winning. And it's super great for our kids because we haven't had like the best couple of seasons previously. We've never had a great football team, I'll be honest. It's where I went to high school. We've never been known for our football team. Um so they've been working really hard and we got a new coach like two years ago. This is his second year. Um, and they've been working really hard and you can tell a difference. Um, and they played so well last night and they won their second game of the season. So I'm super proud of them. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We're excited. So we've got some good news and some bad news. Let's start with the bad news. Yeah. It's always nice to soften the blow after you say the bad news. Yeah. There's not going to be an episode next week, but there's a good reason. Yes. The good news is... There's good and bad for the bad news, right? Right. The good news and the good reason is we're getting ready to dive into a case that's had quite a few people on the edge of their seats. Mont Holly. Yeah. So if you've been following our case card series on the ACCA social media pages, you're already familiar with kind of the intrigue surrounding Mont's case. But rest assured, we're going to do our best to answer as many questions as we can. And I'm telling you, excited isn't the right word, but I am just so glad that we're finally on Mont's case. And so we really just want to do our best. This was kind of what pushed the podcast, I think, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. When we started the case series, it was kind of like, this isn't really the most effective way to get these stories out there by doing multiple case cards. There's got to be a better way. Yep. And all these people were kind of asking us, when are you going to do a podcast? And we really yeah. were pushing them off, but this kind of just made sense at the time. You know, yeah. they're, we're so excited about, you know, Danielle's and uh, Brittany's case kind of kicking us into gear just to get this whole entity started with the ACCA. But really, Mont's case did kick the podcast in gear. Yep. So you might be wondering why there's a bit of a wait. Well, Stormy yeah. and her husband are in the midst of moving into their new home, which we're super which excited I'm about. Sure you know about because that's all we've talked about the last three episodes. Yes, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're excited though. It, it's just as everybody probably knows who's ever moved, it's very exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's stressful. It is really stressful. Mm-hmm. And then once it's all over with, though, you can just kind of sit down, take a deep breath, and you'll be so happy, like, that it's all done and it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Like, the stress is so worth it. But you can't pile too much on at one time and then it just gets to be too much. So on top of them moving, I've also been kind of knee-deep in several ACCA-related matters. And then I just also have some personal things that are going on. So we want to make sure that we're able to give as much time as we need to adequately cover Mont's story because it's incredibly complex. And we fully expect that it's going to be a multi-part episode. Um, 
we kind of, from the very beginning, we it took several case cards. It's also almost 20 years now. It hasn't been covered extensively in any media mm-hmm. um, coverage outside of the beginning when they were initially covering the search efforts. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of moving parts there. There So, you know, we want to make sure that we give ourselves plenty of time to make sure that we do it justice. And we don't always have as much information available to us. We have talked about this before. We don't have um, communication with the family um, or we don't have documents or we don't have, you know, various other things. But this is one of those cases, Mont's case is one of those cases where we actually do have, you know, a good bit of information and we do communicate with the Hollies a lot. So it kind of gives us the ability to cover it a little bit more thoroughly. Um, I'm actually looking forward to you all out there being able to actually meet Dr. Hiley and Mrs. Yes, I'm very thankful to be able to give them kind of a, a platform too. And Miss Gill. So mark your calendars because on September 21st, Mont's episode will finally be unleashed. We're taking this extra time to ensure we have all the details, interviews, and follow-ups you've asked about. If you listen all the way to the end of this episode, we've got a special teaser for you, giving you a sneak peek into the first episode. Stay tuned. So today we're sharing our September cold cases currently on our list, our September remembrances. Though it is September now, we're a bit ahead of schedule, trying to put it closer to the first of the month again, but also that we're covering Macon County for our next case coverage. So we didn't want to interrupt that with a mini in the middle. And again, as always, keep in mind as you hear the names and listen to the summary of these cases, if you remember any piece of information, please reach out. We will have the contact information for each case in the episode description, as usual. Please keep sharing these cases to keep their names out there and support the family's efforts to find a resolution for their loved ones. Charles Joseph, or CJ, Browning III. 30-year-old CJ Browning and his wife Tara stopped at IHOP Restaurant in Tillman's Corner in Mobile County on the morning of September 27, 2019. Tara went to the restroom, and when she returned, CJ had vanished. Approximately 20 minutes later, at 9.58 a.m., CJ's Facebook account was accessed by a cell phone at or near Dolphin Island Parkway, approximately seven miles away from the IHOP. CJ did not have a vehicle or a cell phone at the time. It was later determined that the cell phone accessing CJ's account belonged to his cousin. When questioned about this, He claimed to have accessed the account accidentally because CJ had previously used his phone and stored his login information. He also claimed to have no knowledge of CJ's whereabouts. Tara says the account couldn't have been accessed accidentally since she had recently helped CJ change his password, and the stored login information would have been incorrect. Four years later, his case is still open with the Mobile County Sheriff's Office. CJ is described as a white male, approximately 5'11 to 6 foot and 185 to 200 pounds, with hazel eyes and brown hair. He has multiple tattoos, including his stomach, chest, calf, back, arms, and shoulders. If you have any information, please contact Mobile County Sheriff's Office at 251-574-8633 or submit an anonymous tip on the Mobile County Sheriff's Office website. 
A link to that will be in the episode description. Jasmine Amaret Nicole Calloway Host 29-year-old Jasmine Host was last seen at her home on Nakalula Drive in Gadsden, Alabama on the evening of September 15, 2017, a home that she shared with her husband, Mark Host, housemate Rachel Sears, and seven children. The household had planned to move to Dawson Springs, Kentucky on September 16, 2017, but Sears said when they got up to leave for Kentucky, Jasmine was gone. Jasmine has not been seen or heard from since. In 2021, Mark Host and Rachel Sears were arrested in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, as fugitives from Alabama. On November 11, 2021, Host was booked in Etowah County Sheriff's Office on charges of rape first and sexual abuse using an inanimate object. And Sears was booked on charges of sexual abuse similar to Mark's. It's unknown whether these charges are related to the disappearance of Jasmine, but family has relayed that Jasmine was abused physically and emotionally, in addition to the abuse and manipulation towards the children as well. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because when we looked at those court records, we found a handwritten letter, um, and it's public records, so I don't even mind saying this now, um, from Rachel to the clerk's office asking for a copy of her case action summary, because this still Mm -hmm. hasn't went to trial. It keeps getting continued. Um, But she asked for information on marrying another inmate, Mark Host. Right. And that's interesting because Mark is technically married still. So, yep. Unless Rachel knows something, we don't know. We can make all kinds of guesses at that, can't we? Yeah. <laughs> Four years later, Jasmine continues to be listed as an open case on Central Alabama Crime Stoppers, and her parents, Renee and Billy Calloway, are still awaiting justice for their daughter's disappearance. For more in-depth coverage of Jasmine's case, we featured Jasmine on episode 12 of Unforgotten. At the time of her disappearance, Jasmine was 29 years old. She's an African-American, approximately 5 foot 6 and 145 to 155 pounds. She has brown eyes and black hair, though at one point she had a shaved head and wore a wig. If you have any information on Jasmine's whereabouts or her time in Michigan or Alabama, you can contact Sergeant Eric Phillips at the Gadsden Police Department at 256-549-4500 or submit an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867 or their website, and the link will be on the description. Janelle Farley Massey Janelle Massey's daughter shared with Secrets True Crime that though some say she hasn't been seen since she left a rehab center on September 2, 2016 and stopped at a convenience store, she was last reported to be seen in October of 2016. And according to the Walker County Sheriff, Nick Smith, she was last seen in the Sipsy Empire area. At the time of her disappearance, Janelle was eagerly awaiting the birth of her first granddaughter, Her daughter says that regardless of her struggles with addiction, she has no enemies and is a good person who would basically do anything for anyone. Her daughter pleads that if anyone has information, that they at least anonymously provide that information, even if it's just the location of her mom's remains, so that she can have a little bit of closure and lay her mother to rest properly. At the time of her disappearance, 
Janelle was 40 years old. Janelle is described as a white female around 5'4 and approximately 115 pounds with red hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information about the disappearance of Janelle, please contact the Jasper Police Department at 205-221-2121 or the Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Rebecca Henderson Polk 26-year-old Rebecca Henderson Polk left her parents' home on September 7, 2015 and hasn't been seen since. The following day, Rebecca's tan Honda Civic was located on a rural road of the Why Not community in Mississippi, a small unincorporated community on the Alabama border, approximately an hour from Rebecca's Linden home. Her purse, laptop, and iPad were still inside. A few days later, her cell phone was found approximately a mile away from her car, and on September 24, 2015, Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office questioned 57-year-old John Bentley Poizo Jr. and executed a search warrant on his old wire road property after authorities said they received information that Rebecca and Poizo knew each other and had been seen together in Meridian. The two-day search turned up no evidence tying Poizo to Rebecca's disappearance, and over the last six years, there have been several searches for Rebecca, but those searches have been unsuccessful. Rebecca is a white female, roughly 5 foot 6 and 145 pounds, with blonde hair and hazel eyes at the time of her disappearance. Her case is listed in Mississippi, though her residence is in Linden, Alabama. If you have any information, please contact Demopolis Police Department at 334-289-3073, East Mississippi Crime Stoppers at 855-485 8477 or submit an anonymous tip at the Lauderdale Sheriff's Office website, which the link will also be in the details. Adam Myers. This year marks 10 years since 33-year-old Adam Myers was fatally injured in a hit-and-run in Jasper and left just a mile behind Walker County Baptist Medical Center. Yes, a mile from a place that could render medical assistance. That just blew me away. When I first read that the first time, I was like, really? Yeah. It's like literally right there. You could probably see it. Yeah. And how many cars went by? I wonder. Right. According to reports, 33-year-old Adam was last seen leaving a local Jasper business around 2 a.m. on September 1st, 2013. And at approximately 4 a.m., Adam was found by a passerby on Blackwell Dairy Road. Although the driver fled the scene, they left behind an important piece of evidence that led to the identification of the vehicle involved, a gray 1999 Nissan Altima. Unfortunately, it does not appear the driver has ever been identified, nor has the car ever been located. If you have any information, if you remember somebody having a car like that, a gray 1999 Nissan Altima, or hearing about this, Please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or the Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Garland Teal Ford In March of 2012, 76-year-old Garland Ford moved from his home in Arkansas to Bayou Labatre, 
and then moved in with a married couple named Jesse and Polly Hopper in Wilmer, Mobile County. We don't know why Garland decided to make his move, but in September of 2012, he did speak to his daughter and told her he wanted to move back to Arkansas. This was the last time anybody had heard from Garland. In January of 2013, the Hoppers were detained and the sheriff's office conducted a search of their Wilmer home on Morgan Lane, but found nothing. However, authorities were able to determine that the couple used Garland's security benefits after he went missing. No one has yet been charged in connection with the disappearance. The Hoppers didn't get off scot-free, though. In 2014, along with their son, they were arrested and found guilty of kidnapping a woman and two children in Arkansas and taking them to New Mexico. Jeez. I know. This has got to be a really great couple here. Garland is a white male who would be 87 years old as of 2023. He has a gray receding hairline, hazel eyes, with a height of 5'10 to 6 foot tall, and a weight of around 185 to 200 pounds. Garland has many health issues, including a pacemaker. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Garland T. Ford, if you know the Hoppers and have seen them together or know anything about what might have happened, please contact the Mobile County Sheriff's Office at 251-581-1181. Shana Janelle Peoples 19-year-old Shana Janelle Peoples was last seen on September 8, 2011, walking to her parents' home just down the road from her home in Geneva, Alabama. At the time of her disappearance, she lived about two blocks away from her parents. According to the FBI, Shanna is mentally challenged and has the maturity level of a 13-year-old girl. She also takes daily medication for severe bipolar disorder. Shanna's daily routine consisted of her walking or riding her bike between her home and her parents or a nearby store to purchase soda and candy. On the day that she was discovered missing, the front door to Shanna's home was found open and the television on, although there appeared to be no signs of struggle. Family and friends close to Shanna said that she was very routine about turning the TV off and locking the door when she left. Shanna also frequently used her cell phone, but that day it was turned off around 4 p.m. Shanna remains missing 12 years later. You can hear more about her case on Unforgotten's episode 13. Shanna is described as a white female, approximately 6 feet tall and 120 pounds, with sandy blonde hair and brown eyes. She has a birthmark on her left thigh and may also go by the name Shanna McKee. If you have any information, please contact the Geneva Police Department at 334-684-6277, the FBI at 251-438-3674, or submit an anonymous tip on the FBI website, which will be linked in the episode details. Cindy Nichols Gingrich 26-year-old Cindy Gingrich of Summerton, Alabama, was shot to death outside her home on Main Street sometime after 11.30 p.m. on September 7, 1994. Her two children were sleeping inside her home at the time. In 2021, her husband, Ed, along with her parents and children, sat down with ABC 3340 to discuss the case in an effort to bring more attention to it. Cindy's parents believe they know who killed her as they've been receiving threatening phone calls from someone she'd been seeing. 
And they say investigators also had a suspect in mind, but they didn't have enough evidence. The Walker County Sheriff's Office has not offered follow-up information. Later, Walker County DA Bill Adair told ABC 3340, Cindy's file and personal belongings had finally been located and they had met with one family member to go over the case. He also stated the investigation was considered open. And we here at Unforgotten have talked to Cindy's mom, and she is anxious to find some resolution to this. She really misses her daughter, as most parents would, and we would like to see this case solved. In 1994, Governor Folsom announced a $7,500 reward for information in the case, a reward that Governor Ivey's office confirmed to ABC 3340 was still available until the case was solved. In the upcoming week, almost 29 years later, Cindy's case remains unsolved. If you have any information, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or the Walker County District Attorney at 205-384-7272. Carrie Smith Lawson. Around 3 a.m. on September 11, 1991, 25-year-old Carrie Lawson and her husband Earl Lawson, Jr., received a phone call from a woman claiming to be a nurse, stating a close family member was in the hospital. As Carrie and Earl exited their home to go to the hospital, a gunman appeared at their vehicle and forced Carrie to bind Earl with duct tape. He then took Carrie away from the home. The assailant was later identified as 49-year-old Jerry Bland. Two days later, Bland made a ransom demand of $300,000 to Carrie's family, which they promptly paid. Three weeks later, on October 1, 1991, while law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, surrounded his home, Bland died by suicide, without ever revealing Carrie's location. Law enforcement recovered the majority of the ransom money in Bland's home. Bland's cousin, Karen Lancaster McPherson, allegedly dropped Bland off at the Lawson home on the evening of Carrie's abduction. McPherson also reportedly told authorities she had spent several hours with Carrie in the first day or two of her abduction. McPherson was sentenced to life in prison for her role in Carrie's abduction, and I think she made several statements and recanted those statements um, about exactly what happened to Carrie and maybe where she is. Yeah. In 1993, Carrie was declared deceased. Over the years, several searches have been conducted in an effort to locate Carrie's body, but those efforts have been unsuccessful. And this is one of those cases that people always comment on whenever it's brought up. It's talked about a lot, but it's like one of those that um, there is a lot of mystery around this case. Yeah. And when you go back and you read the old newspaper articles, I think there were a lot of flubs in the investigation I saw there's a pretty long article talking about several things that went wrong in the process, like with the ransom drop and different things like that. And I think the FBI wasn't overly, you know, happy afterwards with maybe how their performance overall was. There's there's a lot there. Um, There sure is, yeah. And And I'm sure there's a reason why it's with the Attorney General now. Yeah, and I would love to see some movement happen on it. I don't know that it will because it is so talked about. You know, that's one of those that, like, as soon as somebody talks about it, 
or post about yeah. it, like the comments just start mm-hmm. popping off. And they do. It's kind of almost one of those viral posts that go, you know, as soon as somebody posts something, it just is and, all over. Yeah. And maybe it's one of those things where, like, you know, we were talking about, I think it was last week that sometimes in cases they think that whoever's responsible for it's already dead anyway so why go after it you know mm-hmm. but yeah that's not the point no. and I guess I don't really understand why these as we just talked about Cindy's case we talked about Carrie's we're getting ready mm-hmm. to talk about another case from Walker County that's older why these haven't had any movement in so long yeah you know 32 years later Carrie Lawson still has not been located Carrie is described as a white female between 5'5 and 5'7 and 135 to 145 pounds with dark brown hair and blue eyes. If you have any information, please contact the Alabama Attorney General's office at 334-242-7300. Rebecca Becky Ferguson. Becky Ferguson was 32 years old when she disappeared on September 16, 1988. Becky, a mother of two, was last seen in Jasper, Walker County, Alabama. She was supposed to travel to visit her cousin in Birmingham, but she never made it. Her Cadillac was found abandoned two days later in Curry, Alabama. Although no blood or evidence of injury was found at the vehicle, police do suspect foul play as they found two shotgun holes through the vehicle and her jewelry was found on the floor. There was also broken jewelry found on her garage floor when they searched her home. 35 years later, Becky has still not been located. Becky is described as a white female, approximately 5 foot 8 and 130 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. If you have any information regarding what happened to Rebecca Ferguson, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-302. 6464 or call Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. You know, I can't be the only one that notices similarities like this. Like I know. We posted about Paula Connor recently. We just talked about Becky Ferguson. We just talked about Carrie Lawson and maybe it's because of the location and people tend to Depending on where you're at, you know, looks, physical traits are typically, you know, similar or whatever. Mm-hmm. But all of these women are like roughly the same height, weight. They all have the same hair color. You know, they have dark hair, dark eye. Yes. And it's yeah. like very similar. And it's that's just, it bothers me. It bothers me too. Every time I read a description of somebody that we're covering. Mm-hmm. It does. And mocker, yep. And for our last case this week is Carmel Clark Carroll, who we just featured in last week's episode number 25. 52-year-old Carmel Harrell migrated from England to the U.S. in the 1950s with her husband, Frank Carroll. They settled in the small town of Hainville, Alabama. She was a well-known and well-loved ballet instructor and a member of the Hainville community. Carmel and Frank operated several successful businesses. Um, Like I said, you can go back and hear more about kind of her life up to and after moving to Alabama. She's a very interesting woman um, in episode 25 of Unforgotten. Carmel's nude body was discovered by her son, Robert, the morning of September 15th 
having gone to check on her after she didn't show up to open the grocery store. Investigators released minimal details related to their investigation. However, Lowndes County Coroner Willie McGee stated Carmel had been murdered at least 12 hours before on September 14, 1985, and they stated there were no signs of a struggle. According to the then Lowndes County Sheriff John Hewlett, there was also no apparent sign of forced entry. She had been raped and hit over the head with a weapon multiple times. It's speculated the weapon was a fireplace poker, as one was reportedly missing from the home during the initial investigation, though it was located a few days later in the house. Fingerprints were found on the scene, but no suspects were ever identified. There were some rumors or speculation that the murder may have been the result of a robbery, possibly after closing a store the night before, or a home robbery. And there were reports of silver dollars being found in her backyard during the initial search that Sunday morning. However, Her family tells us that she didn't work that Saturday because she was at an appointment in Montgomery. If you have any information, no matter how small, please come forward. There's a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Carmel's murder. Please contact the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation at 800-392-8011. Thank you for listening today and thank you for being an advocate for these missing and murdered persons and their families. Please share their stories and please make contact with authorities or with us if you have any information. As a reminder, the contact information is listed in the episode details. It's a tale that has puzzled Montgomery and Macon counties for nearly two decades. It was November of 2003 when Dr. Mont Holly ventured to the family's farm in the secluded community of Shorter in Macon County to meet his 33-year-old son, Mont. Dr. Holly arrived at the camp expecting to find Mont, but what he discovered was emptiness. The camp, though still alight with flickering lights and the television playing in the background, was devoid of Mont and his Chevrolet Tahoe. Dr. Holly, assuming that Mont had merely been sidetracked by other plans, decided to return to Montgomery. We've talked about it when we were researching in Mont's case that Boys, especially, don't always think things through. They don't think always to say, oh, hey, change plans, or um, let me turn those lights off or whatever. They're just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to come hang out. And then they just, like, run out, you know? And so I imagine that's a lot what it is, because one thing that Dr. Holly has told us is that, like, mom was kind of a a creature of habit, like, or convenience, not habit, convenience, like, If it was convenient, that's what he was going to do. So his friend called and he was like, this is hypothetical, assuming. This is what Dr. Holly thought. His friend called, said, hey, let's go watch the football game. He's like, all right, dude, I'll be there in a minute, you know, and left. Yeah. Wasn't unexpected. Probably it happened before, actually, you know. Just left everything as is, didn't bother doing any kind of preparation. or Yeah. Yeah. And he probably walked in and was like, seriously? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it could be every light. Are you kidding me right now? Yeah, yeah. You didn't even lock the door. <laughs> Come on. Yep. Yep. Little did Dr. Holly know that within a matter of days, the Holly family's life would take a chilling and irreversible turn when Dale Segrist, a former attorney and Macon County judge, called to say that Mont's Tahoe had been found at their camp just two miles away off County Road 30. 
That revelation jolted the Hollies into action, igniting a frantic search for Mont that would grip the community's attention. Days turned into weeks, with every passing moment amplifying the anguish of uncertainty. It was really cold. Yeah. I mean, this is the end of November into December, and we talk about the Alabama weather is so finicky and that sometimes it can be warm, sometimes it can be cold. But this is in Macon and Montgomery County. It's not really on the coast, so it's a little less warm in the actual winters. Like, the more north you go in Alabama, you actually start getting more into the wintertime, actual real winter weather. But this was one of those years where we actually had winter weather. Like, so Christmas was actually cold. It was actually cold. I think that maybe during the day, the highs were in, like, the 60s. Um, But at night, it was, like, freezing. Yeah. So... That was kind of nerve-wracking when we talked to Dr. Holly. You know, he said that was one of the things that they kept thinking about was what kind of clothes did he have on? If he's lost out here in these woods, it's cold. How long does he have if every day it's starting to get more and more critical? Right, right. And it wasn't until January of 2004 that that mystery took a even more sinister turn. When Johnny Johnson, a name familiar to the Holly family, stumbled upon a haunting discovery. Johnny Johnson's eerie find shook the community to its core. He located Mont's lifeless body in an abandoned silo tucked away behind the back 40, a restaurant owned by Johnson's father, Ted Johnson, situated just roughly a half mile from where Mont's truck had been found on the Seagrass property. That was one of those things that we, once we realized where everything was located and how close everything was located, we went kind of on a hunt to place everything where it was. And it took a little bit of deciphering because you were looking at Google and you were looking at old maps and you were looking at newspaper articles and all. It was it was interesting trying to figure out exactly where everything was. It is. And if you actually go look on our website, Mont's case is one of the cases that we actually have up under our Alabama cases. Mm-hmm. We actually have a little map with the locations on there and the line showing kind of where everything was, the distances, to make it a little bit easier because sometimes you really just need to be able to see it. Right. And there was a timeline that we posted also to go along kind of with the whole thing. Mont Holly, a striking figure with dark brown hair and captivating blue eyes, was the embodiment of Southern charisma. Born into a family of distinction, he was the youngest of three children born to Dr. Mont Holly, a successful and respected physician in Montgomery, and Gail Holly. Mont's journey through life took him from Montgomery Academy, where he excelled as a multi-sport athlete, to the hallowed grounds of the University of Alabama. He embraced the Southern trifecta of hunting, fishing, and football, namely the Crimson Tide, with a fervor that was unmatched. But Mont was more than just a sports enthusiast and an outdoorsman. He was a free spirit who charged his own course, living life entirely on his own terms. You know, one thing that I don't think um, has also been talked about really is Mont knew the Seagrass before his truck was just found there. And I think that's probably been part of the intrigue around his vehicle being found there. Wade Segrist, who is Dale's brother, 
was actually the headmaster or principal at Montgomery Academy when Mont went to school there. And Wade's son actually played football. I found football stories um, or newspaper articles talking about the two of them being on the same team, game recaps or things like that. Right, yep. And then Dale also has a son named Mike, who is the current Macon County DA that is that same age group. So these guys grew up playing sports together and seeing each other out and about. I don't think that Dr. Holly actually had the property that their camp was on that long. I think maybe they'd had it a year or two at the time. Mm -hmm. But the Hollies and the Seegers knew each other previously. Right. It wasn't like this was just somebody random who they had never met before. Right, exactly. Um, a lot of people, I think, just make that kind of assumption that, oh, his truck was found on our property. Who is this man? Yeah, and it's not really talked about either that there's this, you know, potential link there. No. Mm -mm. Um, huh. Reaction, maybe? Yeah, what was he doing there? Or kind of odd. I just think that's probably something that's been looked over. It probably wouldn't have necessarily been surprising that his vehicle would have been found there because our understanding is that, you know, maybe Mont would actually go um, hunting, like duck hunting and stuff with the Seagrass sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, especially it, since they had got the camp there that maybe he had hung yeah. out with them on occasion before. So it wasn't necessarily surprising that his vehicle would have been there, um, but maybe just the response slash reaction at this point. Yeah, and if you didn't know the family, I mean, the people reading about what happened don't know the family. They don't really know that they knew each other in any way like that. Right. Um, but, you know, you also have to think it's been it's the holidays. It's the beginning of the holiday season. Thanksgiving just happened. People out in small communities, farms, lots of, you know, younger people. A lot of people have gatherings around that time, too. So, mm -hmm. And there, this was a massive search effort. Mm-hmm. There were a lot yep. of people involved. There were also a lot of people that weren't involved. Yep. Yep. As we dive into Mont's story, we will uncover the layers of a man whose disappearance and subsequent death would spark a mystery that continues to haunt the community to this day. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families and raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. 
Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.